Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Wisconsin State Journal reported today that Senator Ron Johnson again asserted his support for Harry Waite, who admitted that he illegally requested absentee ballots for numerous public officials. Waite stated that this action was an effort to show the vulnerabilities of the Wisconsin election system. Johnson said that if it were up to him, he would not seek charges against Waite, calling him a, quote, white hat hacker. In in contrast, Johnson attacked the Election Commission for sending postcards to previous absentee voters to determine if their address is correct, although it is a standard practice of election commissions to verify home addresses. The state Justice Department is currently investigating wait for felony election fraud charges. A Dane County judge released an order today stating that Michael Gableman was no longer in contempt of his court. In June, Judge Frank Remington found Gableman in contempt for refusing to produce documents requested from a plaintiff and for insulting him from the witness stand. The judge, the judge stated that Gableman submitted an affidavit on June 28th saying he had conducted a search for the documents. Although that do- affidavit was vague, Judge Remington said that Gableman made a reasonable effort and thus was no longer in contempt. However, the judge ordered the former Supreme Court justice to pay $24,000 in fines for the 12 days between the contempt order and the submittal of the affidavit. That's according to a report by the Associated Press. The state health department alerted the public today on the increased number of deaths caused by drugs laced with fentanyl. Drugs including meth, cocaine, and opioids may have fentanyl added to them because it is inexpensive to produce and is very strong. It is 50 times stronger than a comparable amount of heroin. The vast majority of overdoses, whether from opioids or other drugs, are due to the addition of fentanyl. Fentanyl deaths have doubled in Wisconsin in the past three years. In March, Governor Tony Evers decriminalized fentanyl test strips to test the presence of fentanyl in an illegal drug. These strips can be obtained by calling the 211 helpline. And those are the headlines for this evening. On to the rest of the day's top stories. Earlier today, city officials held a community briefing on public safety, showing that Madison is slowly but surely becoming safer. Our reporter Tegan Carter has more. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway led a public safety briefing this morning along with traffic engineer Yang Tao, police chief Sean Barnes, and Madison Fire Department assistant chief for medical affairs Chase Stedman. During the briefing, they touched on several programs that have been implemented here in Madison to reduce events like traffic accidents and shots fired incidents. These programs include the police department's summer strategic plan, the Vision Zero program, CARES, and a team city approach. First up were traffic accidents in Madison. Yang Tao with the City Traffic Engineering Division says that total crashes are down 5%, with fatalities and serious injuries down 40% in the first half of this year compared to the first half of 2021. Specific attention was paid to East Washington Avenue, where crashes were up 6%, but serious injuries were down 33%, with no fatalities. Programs that have been put in place to improve safety and equity are the Let's Talk Streets initiative and Safe Streets Madison in pursuit of the Vision Zero project, which focuses on the idea that even one death is too many and promotes a culture of driving safety. We really start to refuse to take fatality as a price to pay for mobility. 
you know, everyone starts to believe that uh, even one death is too many. And uh, we're trying to, you know, get down to zero. Uh, we also believe that, uh, you know, humans make mistakes. But the consequences shouldn't be fatalities or some injury that change, you know, the person's life forever or their family's life forever. Next was Chief of Police Sean Barnes giving an update on the summer strategic plan that has been re-implemented again for the period of June 1st to October 31st. Three years of data from June to mid-August shows that as far as homicides, shots fired incidents, injuries from gunfire, crashes resulting in injury or fatality are all trending downward and under the three-year average. According to the statistics provided by Chief Barnes, homicides were down from five during this period in 2020 and 2021 to three this year. Incidents of shots fired went from 36 in 2019 to 92 in 2020, but have come down to 48 last year and 41 this year. Crime uh, is decreasing. It's uh, definitely trending in the right direction. We still have some more work to do on that, um, but I think we're headed in the right direction. We still have work to do in regards to our stolen cars. Uh, We're always seeking ways to improve the effectiveness and efficiency of our police department. These issues were cited by the community to be the most concerning, along with vehicle theft, which is on the rise due to defects in Kias and Hyundais. This can be attributed to groups of teenagers who refer to themselves as Kia boys. The phenomenon, which first started in Milwaukee but now runs nationwide, sees the teens using these defects to quickly steal certain vehicles while sometimes streaming the crime on platforms like TikTok and Instagram. Chief Barnes says that the police department is currently working together with Kia to provide clubs, a type of lock for the steering column, and Hyundai plans to recall their vehicles to address the issue. Stolen auto. Stolen autos represents uh, really our biggest challenge right now. Um, I do think we were trending in the right direction, and then we realized uh, other law enforcement agencies realized, we all did, that there was a defect in two models, the Kia and the Hyundai. Uh, And so if you were to uh, aggregate and leave out the Kias and Hyundai, you would see that we would be below, well below uh, the three-year average. Last was Chase Dedman, Assistant Chief of Medical Affairs for the City Fire Department, to talk about CARES. CARES, which stands for Community Alternative Response Emergency Services, first started last year and is a multi-department initiative which sends a Madison Fire Department community paramedic and a Journey Mental Health Center crisis worker in lieu of a police officer in the event of a non-violent mental health emergency. The program, which recently expanded to two response teams available from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. on weekdays, has assisted 850 patients so far, with 18% connected with acute emergency services and 40% connected with stable services and non-emergency services, such as case management, counseling services, and recovery and rehab centers. Stedman hopes the project will be able to expand with more funding. So, so the slow expansion is intentional, um, but it's also driven by the fact that we have, you know, there's only so much money in the budget. Um, you know, it, our vision is that we have a 24 um, seven team. Uh, I should say teams. So we have multiple 24 seven teams that can answer all of these calls whenever they come in. Because right now, not having a team on the weekends and not having a team overnight means that we're missing some calls. Um, you know, we're always looking at grant opportunities and things like that. But right now, it's um, it's basically just the general fund from the city of Madison. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway wrapped up the briefing to announce that she has also provided funding for a criminologist to work alongside the police force to analyze data in efforts to direct officers where they are needed most while reducing over-policing and racial disparities. This new position is just one part of a larger initiative to address public safety in Madison. 
we are continuing to invest in our um, Office of Violence Prevention, which is in the public health department, because we do understand that we need to take a public health approach to violence prevention. So we're investing in that. That team is expanding, and we're continuing to invest in particularly summer programming for young people to help uh, give them alternatives in the summer months to connect them to training, to employment, to positive activities. And that's something that we um, have been able to do in part because of federal ARPA dollars, uh, which we're very grateful for. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. The Dane County Community Plan to Prevent and End Homelessness was first developed in 2016. But as time has gone on and a global pandemic changed the landscape of unhoused folks in Madison, the city is looking to update that plan. WORT reporter Kristen Bellings has more. This Monday, the City of Madison's Community Development Division and the Homeless Services Consortium of Dane County announced they're seeking a consultant to update the community plan to prevent and end homelessness. The plan, which was first developed in 2016, provided a set of shared goals and strategies to unify public and private agencies and their work to prevent and address houselessness in Dane County. Now, six years later, the plan requires adjustments. This year, it's particularly important because after COVID, everything has changed. Um, The shelters are different. The services are different. There's been more money in our community through a lot of the federal programs. And so um, it's really a good time for us to be looking at, okay, what are our next steps forward? That's Brenda Conkle, who serves as the president of the board of the Homeless Services Consortium of Dane County. The consortium is a collaboration between nonprofits, grassroots groups, government agencies, faith-based organizations, and people who have experienced homelessness. In fiscal year 2021, over 4,000 individuals received housing and homeless services in Dane County. While many challenges persist, Conkle stresses that the 2016 plan has spurred significant changes in the past six years. You know, our men's shelter is more trauma-informed. It's a lower barrier than what it used to be, so more people can get into it and they're not turned away um, because they're, um, you know, under the influence of substances or or other things. And so I think there's been a lot of huge improvements in in the shelter systems. We've also eliminated our 90-day wait limit, our 90-day limit. Uh, It used to be that uh, people could only be in shelter for 90 days per year. But the list of items that have been done is over 40. According to Conkle, updating the plan presents an important opportunity to improve collaboration among service providers and to set larger, simplified goals for the consortium. We want this to be an adaptable plan that we're going to be able to, you know, change as as circumstances change. Um, and we really want it to be something that's data-driven as well. $150,000 in funding was allocated in last year's city budget to pay for the updates. Securing money to implement the recommended changes, though, remains a primary challenge, one that the consortium hopes a consultant can help Madison to navigate. You know, we've made so many advances within the homeless services system during COVID um, that we don't want to move backwards, but we also don't know where the money is going to come from. So it really is a big puzzle for us to try to figure out how we're going to continue, um, you know, these services that are just more humane and more trauma-informed and more more focused on meeting the needs of the folks who are experiencing homelessness. Proposals are due on September 15th, 2022 at noon. I do think this is a really great opportunity for community and I hope that 
people take it seriously. It's hard to get excited about a plan. Um, you know, a lot of plans get set on a shelf. And I think our goal here is to make sure that it doesn't get put on a shelf. Reporting for WORT, I'm Kristen Billings. The time is now 6.18, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. With the November midterm election just around the corner, the Marquette University Law School has just released their latest poll indicating how Wisconsinites feel about a welter of candidates and issues on which they will be voting. The poll, which was conducted after the primary election earlier this month, shows a tight race between the two candidates for governor. Our producer, Nate Weggehaup, spoke with Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll, earlier today. This is an excerpted version of their full conversation. You can hear the entire interview online at wortfm.org. So, Charles, let's just jump right into this thing then. New poll coming out today, uh, right after the primary election here. So let's just start off at the very top of the poll with the governor's race. Uh, What did you find there? How are people sitting when it comes to how they're voting for governor here in November? A very tight governor's race with Evers at 45, Michaels at 43, and Beglinger at 7%. She's the independent candidate on the ballot. Um, This is a tighter race than we saw in June when Evers had a seven-point margin. Um, On the other hand, that was when Michaels first got in the race. And I think the tightening of this race after the primary makes sense in the in the way that Michaels had not been running for, until recently and then uh, has just won the primary. So a tight race there. One interesting thing is that partisans are very strongly aligned behind their candidate, either Democrats for Evers or Republican for Michaels. And those are very similar tight alignments, near 90 percent in both parties. But independents are leaning to Evers by about four percentage points, and that uh, largely accounts for how Evers has this two-point lead, is doing a little better with independents than Michaels does. All right, so close race for governor here in Wisconsin. Let's move over now to the Senate race, uh, Ron Johnson versus Mandela Barnes. What What did you find there? Well, here, instead of tightening, the race has actually widened a little bit. In June, Barnes had a two-point advantage over Johnson. That's a seven-point advantage in this poll, 51 to 44. And with relatively few voters, 5% undecided or wishing for another alternative. Um, This is a good example of the rising awareness of the challenger. Mandela Barnes in this case, who's better known now than he was in June, but he also gets uh, 
a very substantial advantage with independent voters, something we mentioned a minute ago in the governor's race. But whereas in the governor's race, independents favor Evers by four points, they favor Barnes by 14 points. And that's really the key to his advantage overall. Again, the partisans are very strongly aligned in the Senate race, but independents are are leaning pretty heavily to Barnes right now. The real question for both Michaels and Evers is between a quarter and as much as 40% of respondents say they don't know enough about either Michaels or Barnes to answer some questions about them. And so how those voters learn about the candidates and, and make up their minds will have a big influence on whether these advantages stay or whether they're the opportunity for the campaign to matter and shift perceptions of um, of the challengers, Michaels and Barnes. So now in your presentation that you gave earlier today, you sort of broke down and looked at two real big issues that are sort of real big in the news right now, and that's uh, abortion access and the January 6th hearing. So let's just start off with the first one there, uh, abortion access. What, what did you uh, find that people in Wisconsin think about abortion access and going from there about Roe being overturned. Sure. So first of all, uh, an enormous percentage say they've heard a lot about the Supreme Court's abortion decision. Not every news story penetrates with the public, but in this case, it really has 79% say they've heard a lot about the issue. But uh, opinion is split on the decision, 33% in favor of overturning Roe, But 60% opposed to that decision. And on the question of what should be abortion policy in the state, 65% say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, 30% illegal in all or most cases. And there's been a little decline in the percent illegal. That was 30% this month, but it was 35% in June. So a a modest five-point shift there. But this is an issue that's been very stable over the last 10 years of our polling. And it does look like a small increase in the percent favoring legal. However, we asked, should abortion be legal in cases of rape or incest? And there, 88 percent say it should be legal in those circumstances. And that includes 79% of Republicans, 87% of independents, and 97% of Democrats. So while there are deep partisan divisions over the extent to which abortion should be legal and whether Roe should have been overturned, there is something approaching unanimity across the parties that rape and incest should be a circumstances in which abortion should be legal. And now the other one there, I talked about the January 6th hearings. Now, some people might say, well, this is not really a a Wisconsin issue here. But you could also argue that it is uh, affects everyone here in America. So let's sort of get into that a little bit. What did you find there? Uh, what are what are people's thoughts on those hearings? I, I think, first of all, people are paying attention, though, not quite as much as to the abortion ruling. In this case, 57 percent said they'd heard a lot about the hearings, and that includes 53% of Republicans and independents, though a higher 70% of Democrats. 
But the idea that Republicans in particular were ignoring the hearings, I think, is not supported by the data. Um, <coughs> just over half say they've heard a lot about it. The interpretation, though, is very different. Only 8%, well, first of all, overall, 47% say Donald Trump bears a lot of responsibility for the violence on January 6th, uh, 19% a little and 31% none at all. But among Republicans, it's a very different uh, result. 8% say he bears a lot, 62% say he bears no responsibility Independence, 46% a lot, 29 none, and Democrats, 89 a lot, and just 2% say none at all. So even though I think, relatively speaking, all of the parties are paying attention to the hearings, there's a vast, vast difference in the just in the takeaway, if you will, at least in terms of Trump's responsibility for the violence that day. Now, Charles, there's a whole lot going on in this poll here that came out today, but we're sort of running up against the clock here. So do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to uh, touch on? I would just say that there are a lot of issues where we see the kinds of expected deep divisions between the parties. And that always is important for what parties do if they take power, whether it's here in the governor's office or in Washington in control of the Senate. But I think two things did stand out to me, and one we've already talked about, the the very high percentage that favor a rape or incest exception for abortions. But the other one that I thought was a little more surprising was in uh, support for paid parental leave uh, that would require businesses to provide that kind of leave said new parents should be allowed to have or business should give that uh, paid leave. But that includes 65% of Republicans and 79% of independents, 90% of Democrats. So I would not have expected ahead of time that the parties would give such substantial majorities to required paid family leave including two-thirds of Republicans. So there are a few items like this where majorities actually agree across party lines, even if there's a whole lot of other issues where they deeply disagree. All right. I've been talking with Charles Franklin, director of the Marquette Law School poll, about the newest poll that released just today ahead of the November election. Uh, You can read that whole poll for yourself over on the Marquette Law School website. Charles, it's always a pleasure talking with you here. Good talking to you. Take care and have a good day. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. For the past 40 years, the Madison School District has offered tours of our local lakes on a fleet of specially made pontoon boats. On this week's Parks and Landmarks, Sean Bull explores how this service gives everyone the opportunity to see a different side of our city. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. One of the best ways to explore Madison is to get out on a boat. 
So much of the way we live here is defined by how the lakes squeeze our land, and it can be hard to fully appreciate that until you look from the lake's perspective. If you don't personally own a boat, there are a few ways to do this. There are rental businesses on Monona, Mendota, and Wingra, which afford anyone the opportunity to take a canoe or paddleboard for a try. I've done this, it's a lot of fun, but there are limitations. Of course you need the money to rent in the first place, and some level of athletic ability, but there's also less obvious drawbacks inherent in this approach. If you were to rent a kayak on one of the big lakes, I think you might find yourself hugging the shore a bit. There's nothing wrong with this. After all, the shore is where all the interesting stuff is. But if you saw something on the opposite side of the lake and wanted to check it out, you would probably take the route straight across the middle. And that's where things might get nerve-wracking. There's a lot going on in the middles of lakes Monona and Mendota. The middle of the lake is the domain of the powerboat. It's where people tube, ski, and generally cruise around at speeds a kayak can't match. It's not dangerous, really. The boaters of Madison are generally courteous to craft of all sizes and will give a paddler a wide berth. But how comforting is that to someone who isn't out on the lakes much? Someone who's just renting for the day? In this situation, pardon the phrase, but you'd be forgiven if you felt a little out of your depth. A more accessible way to get out on the lakes is to simply wait for them to freeze over. Climate change notwithstanding, every lake in Madison freezes solid for at least a couple months out of the year. This means that anyone who can so much as walk, crawl, or roll themselves to the lakeshore can just keep going, and the ice will bear them out to a view of the city previously reserved for geese. But this, too, is less than perfect. For one thing, it's cold. The same person who might find it hard to justify a $60 boat rental might also not have the right winter clothes to go hang out on a sheet of ice for an hour. Obviously, the kind of weather that freezes a whole lake is bitterly chilly, but in the middle of a lake, the lack of obstructions also means the wind is at its absolute worst. For anyone who can't adequately bundle up, it's just not a great environment for sightseeing. Because of these reservations, there's only one way that I can recommend to anyone who wants to get out on the Madison Lakes. It takes no physical effort, costs next to or actually nothing, and you'll even learn something along the way. Madison School and Community Recreation has been conducting boat rides for the last 40 years. And still, I think the service is a bit underappreciated. Several times a week, you can find specially made pontoon boats making loops out from Tenney, Warner, and Ulbrick Parks, as well as one of the piers at the UW Memorial Union. These boats are no-frills affairs, a flat deck populated with plastic lawn chairs rather than the built-in couches you might expect. The nice thing about this decidedly impermanent seating is that it's adjustable. By taking a chair away, these boats can accommodate a wheelchair better than anything else on the water. For just $5 cash, you're treated to an hour-long loop around a section of one of the lakes. Along the way, two volunteer crew members, usually retired folks from the area, serve as tour guides, pointing out interesting things along the shore and providing context for what you're seeing. So folks over on the left-hand side, or your right, is the Yahara River. The Yahara River is what connects Lake Mendota to this lake, Lake Monona, and then it also flows all the way... That's the voice of Katie Minook, one of the volunteers with the MSCR pontoon program. As a first mate, she handles most of the actual tour guide duties. On some of her tours, 
Terry Walker fills the role of captain, navigating the pontoon around its route. I talked with both of them earlier this week about their experience as MSCR volunteers. As a disclaimer for any audiophiles listening, we did this interview on the lake. I did my best to minimize the wind noise, but you can still hear it coming from the surrounding trees. Also, we just couldn't escape a constant stream of landing jet planes. These pontoon tours are many things, but Serene is never quite one of them. My name is Katie Manuk, and I'm a volunteer with the MSCR pontoon program. I have been doing this now for two years. This is my second summer. My name is Terry Walker, and I do the same thing. I think this is my 10th year of doing this. How often do you do this? Like, how many times a week? Well, I think we, we each do two regular things. The nice thing about this program is that it's very flexible for volunteers. You can sign up for regular trips. Um, you can sign up for specialty trips. Um, it's just very flexible. So you can do as much as you're able to and as you want to. So uh, if somebody wants to be a volunteer, when do they have to start thinking about that? Where do they go to apply? There's a website. It's www.mscr.org slash pontoon. Mm -hmm. And that talks about the program. And it also, I think, gives an email address where you can contact and say, I'd love to volunteer and please put me on your list. And then once they start getting things ready for the spring and getting the training programs put together, then they'll contact you and, and ask you if you're still interested. And then you have to, um, I know they do background checks and there are things that you do because we're volunteers with the school district. Um, but when you go through all those reviews, then, then you can start training and become part of the program. We usually have a kickoff meeting about the middle of April and then things start up right after that. Is there anything that sticks out as, as something you've learned along doing this? Pretty much everything I know about the lakes I've, I've learned from here. I'm, I'm not a native of Madison, so I knew very little about the lakes when I started doing this. I can't say enough about yeah. the training program. I had never driven a boat before I started doing this. By the time I got through the training program, I was pretty comfortable operating it. And I know Katie just went through that, mm -hmm. and her and I was worked as a team on this drop-in towards towards the end of her training. And she's, she's picked that up really, really well. <laughs> I've had good teachers, but I, I will echo that comment as well. Um, the training program is very rigorous. Safety is always a high priority, obviously, when you're um, you know, working with, with the public. You want everybody to be safe and have an enjoyable trip. And um, we, we learn a lot, and we practice a lot of different scenarios, and um, I don't think there's ever been any big emergencies in the program, and that's good. And it also gives people who may not have access to the lakes, a chance to get out on boats and get out and see what's what's available through the lakes. And just a whole different way to experience Madison. We cater a lot to retirement homes and uh, senior centers and things like that. And people that have, have need a walker or a wheelchair. The young kids seem to enjoy those specialty programs. We get them on the boat and typically we'll take them over to a park. For me, that's one of the fun things is to, you know, talk to the kids as they're coming on the boat and many of them have never been on a boat before and it's their first experience and, and you know, sometimes they're scared and then when they get off the boat, they really had a great time and they enjoyed it and they want to go out again. I'd say one of the huge perks about volunteering for this program is, aside from, you know, seeing all the beauty of the lakes, is, is getting to meet a lot of people because a lot of people from out of town will also take the trip and you get to meet people from all over the country and, and people from just all over the state who, you know, are really appreciating the beauty of the area and having the opportunity to come out on the lakes. So that's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, you really do meet some interesting people. I had a trip one time with a senior center and a guy got on the boat. He was a survivor of Pearl Harbor. You know, there's not many of those people left. Boy, what a privilege that was for me to, you know, he ended up sitting right next to me. I'm afraid I, I, I didn't pay as much attention to the other people because he was willing to talk and boy, was I willing to listen to that. But that was, a, that was just an outstanding trip to, to have somebody like that on you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a great, great thing for me to do. I enjoy, you know, being of service to people and, and this really is a, a good way to do that. If you're a person who's at all interested in seeing Madison from a different perspective, the Pontoon Program is for you. Rides run from the beginning of June to the end of September. They cost $5, but even that cost can be waived. You can find more information on the rides or how to become a volunteer at the MSCR website. I'll link it directly in the online version of this episode. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, this is our 10th day running of at or below normal temperatures. So the uh, two and a half degree heat surplus for the month that we saw last week at this time has now completely evaporated. Our moisture surplus hasn't quite disappeared. You'll remember that last week we were running at 250% of our expected rainfall for that point in the month. Uh, We're closing in on normal pretty fast, though, now. We're likely to continue our cool streak for a while yet. As I mentioned last week, the computer modeling at the longer ranges has been predicting a retrogression westward of the upper features across the continent including the ridge and trough couplet that have been parked from the Rockies over to the East Coast for the past several weeks. And that now looks like it's finally transpiring, and there's some visual evidence of it on the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening. As I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast, the upper ridge across the uh, Rockies and Central Plains has diminished significantly in its geographical scope, at least from the way it appeared back in late July. And if you have a look at that three-day water vapor satellite sequence this evening, you'll see Monday's already reduced upper ridge getting squashed even further south and westward by cool air descending southward out of Canada down the Central Plains. And the ridge beginning to kind of pop back northward again, rather like the uh, proverbial squeezed balloon out along the west coast. 
One of the impulses that's leading that cool air southward out of Canada is diving through western Alberta, southeastward down through about Montana just now, and beginning to show the bright signatures of some showers and thunderstorms popping up ahead of it. That upper impulse and one adjoining it to its northeast heading south out of Saskatchewan will be imparting increasing amounts of leftward spin to the atmosphere across the northern plains and western Great Lakes as they dive uh, southeastward towards Missouri and southern Minnesota respectively over the coming 48 hours. That will provide lift to the atmosphere below, cooling it and condensing out cloud cover and eventually precipitation as we get out towards the weekend. While those initial couple of impulses are moving pretty fast, the low-pressure circulation that's going to be induced by their passage will ingest a good bit of cold air from the north at the low and mid-levels of the atmosphere, and then cut off at least partially from the surrounding flow on Saturday and Sunday. And while that sometimes makes for uh, difficult predictions, in this case there's a fairly wide model agreement that the partially closed low will head first slowly south from about uh, western Lake Superior or northeastern Minnesota down uh, into Iowa Saturday and then eastward across Illinois on Sunday. That's going to put us in its best precipitation production region uh, mostly during the day on Saturday and perhaps into the overnight into Sunday. Though I think initial showers may start crossing the area in more scattered fashion uh, sometime maybe midday Friday or in the afternoon or evening that day. I'm hoping showers will be largely done then by Sunday, perhaps occurring just uh, primarily with diurnal heating in the afternoon of Sunday. But uh, back to tonight for the specifics, uh, remaining cumulus that are out there should uh, continue to clear as the sun goes down with temperatures dropping to the low 60s on uh, generally light winds, which will reorganize uh, nominally southeast by dawn tomorrow. Departing surface high pressure tomorrow will uh, still be strong enough to keep the near-ground environment dry, so I'm expecting another day of uh, scattered short cumulus with passing high clouds above like we saw today. Temperatures will reach the upper 70s on light southerly winds, uh, perhaps a tad cooler than today because of an uptick in high and mid-level clouds in the afternoon. Those will be from incoming uh, showers and thunderstorms to our uh, northwest with this incoming system. Clouds will likely increase then overnight with a low temperature in the low 60s. Uh, Some of the short-range models show widely scattered showers starting to reach this area by Friday morning, um, but they also show a fair amount of dry air near ground level, so I'm guessing that most areas aren't going to see any significant precipitation besides maybe a brief uh, transient shower until sometime later in the day or overnight even on Friday. Uh, Southwesterly winds will increase to 5 to 10 miles per hour with temperatures reaching... The mid-70s, possibly the upper 70s, if we get enough passing sunshine on Friday. And dew points will start to come up into the low and mid-60s. Passing showers are then likely to increase in the overnight into Saturday with a low temperature in the mid-60s on light southerly winds. And uh, Saturday will be largely cloudy with passing showers with the uh, greatest likelihood of uh, precipitation again in the late day period into the overnight. Temperatures will reach the low 70s on light southerly winds backing southeasterly. We'll drop to the mid-60s overnight on light easterly winds. I think we'll see a lot of the rain slack off and become somewhat more showery at that time as well. And Sunday we'll see a good bit of cloud cover still, and uh, perhaps another round of showers uh, most likely in the afternoon as uh, clouds start to build vertically and temperatures will hold in the low 70s for Sunday. 
It is currently 75 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 59. Winds are out of the east, uh, quite light, 3 miles per hour. Uh, mostly uh, some uh, skeins of cirrus passing uh, aloft over the station, just a few short cumulus left. And the barometer's at 30.09 inches of mercury and falling. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to August 1969, when radicals ran amok, mass transit was a mess, and a local hero died a terrible death. Stu Levitan has the news from 53 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, August 1969 When former Secretary of State Dean Rusk arrives at the Memorial Union for a speech to the summer session of the Graduate School of Banking, there are no university or city police present, even though the Young Socialist Alliance and other radicals had publicly vowed to disrupt the event, which they do, about 200 demonstrators shrieking invective, pounding on the theater doors, forcing Rusk to stop twice. It's worse afterwards. When Rusk is spotted leaving through a rear service entrance, his car is pelted with a half dozen stones and a large stick. Then protesters swarm up Park Street to University Avenue, partially blocking traffic in front of Chadburn Hall for about half an hour, pounding hoods and cursing men trying to drive through as, quote, fascist bloodsuckers. Radicals scatter on the arrival of Madison police who make no arrests. Madison's mass transit system teeters on the verge of chaos as the shareholders of the private Madison Bus Company vote to dissolve the company and go out of business on November 10th, the day the ongoing city subsidy is scheduled to run out. But due to higher-than-projected subsidies over the summer, money that should have lasted until November runs out before the end of the month, forcing the council to pass an emergency appropriation. Most of the Common Council wants the city to buy the bus company and operate the system itself, exactly what voters called for by approving two referenda in April 1968. The Council directs Mayor William Dyke to seek the necessary federal funds, but he refuses to do so, preferring to continue the city subsidy to the private company instead. Although the company can't shut down until the Public Service Commission gives permission, the council schedules a special meeting for early September to decide between private enterprise and public ownership. Some startling testimony from the officer in charge at the Mifflin Street block party riots earlier this year. Yes, there was excessive police reaction, Lieutenant Donald Mickelson says, revealing that he has reprimanded several officers during the disorders which rocked downtown the first weekend in May. Mickelson also tells the special three-man committee Mayor Dyke appointed to investigate the disturbance that he's had second thoughts about the police response. 
I have thought that if we had packed up and got out, nobody would have gotten hurt, and they could have had their dance. But Police Chief Wilbur Emery disagrees. If we had let them have their dance, then what? He asks the committee. What's next? Emery also cites the riot that broke out during the demonstration against the Dow Chemical Company in October 1967 to defend the use of a large force, decked out in riot gear, to respond to a noise complaint. I learned a very strong lesson from Dow, he testifies, to be sure I had enough men to carry out my mission. And he flatly rejects the notion that such an overwhelming police presence might provoke rather than deter a confrontation. An honest, law-abiding citizen should have no fear, but feel pleased if there are a hundred policemen standing out there instead of one, he says. The committee hasn't set a schedule for writing its report, but Chairman George Curry, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice, hints it will not find the police without blame. He says it appears some officers taunted and provoked the partygoers, quote, and hit back in a way not proper for policemen to act. The Police and Fire Commission believes it's proper to act by ignoring the city's promise it would not punish firefighters after their three-day strike in late March, and so suspends Fire Captain and Union President Ed Durkin for six months for leading the illegal action. The commission, led by former Republican Party leader Stuart Becker, says it doesn't have to honor the amnesty agreement because it's an independent body created by state statute and was not involved in the negotiations that settled the strike. The commission decides it's so independent, it doesn't even let city attorney Edwin Conrad speak at a public meeting to defend the amnesty agreed to by the council and former Mayor Otto Feske. You are an interloper here. Attorney Becker tells him, you are entitled to be quiet. The suspension, the longest the commission has ever imposed, will cost Durkin $6,500, which the union quickly moves to make up. Durkin begins his suspension as his attorneys plan the appeal. Madison's first and still only black alder is back on the city council after a unanimous council vote reinstating Eugene Parks as alder from the 5th Ward. Parks automatically lost his seat in July, just three months after being elected, when he inadvertently moved across Brook Street from his district. Although elected for a two-year term in April, Parks will have to run in April 1970 since he is now serving by appointment. Madison's newest mayor wants to preserve our oldest buildings. Mayor Dyke confirms he's been consulting with the preservation-minded Te Chopra Foundation and will soon introduce several ordinances for historic preservation. City Attorney Conrad recently issued an opinion, which Dyke requested, confirming the city has the necessary legal authority. The plan department is publishing a walking tour booklet for Mansion Hill, entitled Sandstone and Buffalo Robes, prepared at Dyke's direction. Thousands pack downtown sidewalks for the annual parade of the Midwest Shrine Association. There are camels, convertibles, and cyclists galore, calliopes and marching bands, and so many clowns it takes three hours for the parade to proceed from Capitol Square to the Milwaukee Road Depot on West Washington Avenue. As they say, I don't remember your name, but your fizz is familiar. Former Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi becomes a rich man. 
thanks to Madison developers David and Jim Carley. When the housing development firm they founded, with Lombardi the chairman of the board, is bought by a company from Cleveland. Lombardi, now coach and general manager of the Washington football team, will net about $1.8 million from the sale, while the brothers will split about $10 million. And a Madison hero falls to an especially tragic death. Marine Corporal Charles Le Bosquet, recipient of two Purple Hearts, is killed by friendly fire in Quang Nam province, three months before turning 22. A platoon radio man who had been in country since February, Le Bosquet was a member of First Baptist Church and a 1965 graduate of West High School. He attended the University of Wisconsin before joining the Marines in 1968. He is survived by his parents, who live at 2555 University Avenue, and his wife, the former Diane Thorstad, 4409 Cherokee Drive. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporters were Tegan Carter and Kristen Billings. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Nate Carlin sat in on engineering duties this evening. Nate Weggehaup produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.